Now let's just go to Mark's gospel for a second and think about this story. Mark has been, as you've heard me say these last weeks, setting up Jesus as the antidote to evil, setting up Jesus as the power against the powers, setting up Jesus as stronger, more capable, more amazing, more badass in terms of dealing with empire. Jesus is reign of God incarnate. Jesus is God's will on earth, made flesh, Afro-Semitic, poor, homeless, at once a refugee, on the margins, using love as power to heal the world. So he's cast out demons in the temple. He's dealt with the religious authorities and kind of called them on their stuff. And now in this miracle story, and maybe even a theophany, a story in which God is revealed, here is Jesus napping on his boat with his disciples. And a storm comes up. And the way Mark tells the story, there's the sense that the disciples don't think Jesus is engaged, that he doesn't care. Jesus wakes up and tells the storm, we all know these words, peace be still, peace be still, peace be still, stop it. I like the way the message version by Eugene Peters, though, says that the wind, the wind lost its breath, the wind lost its power, or since the word breath is spirit, wind, uh, in the same uh, language, Greek and Hebrew, maybe the maybe the wind lost its spirit. Jesus talks to the storm like he's casting out a demonic spirit, is what I'm trying to say. And in fact, in ancient Greek and um, Hebrew mythology, a sea monster meant evil, chaos, brokenness. And so also this storm means evil, chaos, brokenness, empire. And, and in this case, when Jesus, the light worker, when Jesus, the powerful one who inaugurates God's reign on earth, tells the storm to shut up and be quiet, he is castrating it. He is disempowering it. He is, he is disabling it. He is shutting it down, locking it up, and proving that he is the one we've been waiting for, they had been waiting for, the Messiah the one of God to heal the world. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes it can feel to me like the other powers are winning, especially when we're in times of crisis. It can feel that though God is God yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that somehow God's chilling, sitting down, not getting in it. Does that just me? It can feel like the powers are in charge when the violence is raging. It can feel like the powers, the evil powers, the broken empire powers are in charge and like the knee of white supremacy is on our necks. For black people in this nation, for this black woman in this nation, it can feel like lightning is striking to torch hope. It can feel like tornado-like winds are blowing through our lives with anti-Black racism and violence. Being Black in America is, feels like a pre-existing condition for poverty, for discrimination and death. Black Americans have still continued to die of COVID-19 at three times the rate of white Americans. While Black Americans make up only 13% of the US population, we account for 26% of deaths where race is a known factor. 
The incarceration rate for black people is five times the rate of whites and both unemployment and poverty rates are twice as high for whites as whites, excuse me, ours, twice as much. Black wealth is only one-tenth of white wealth. One-tenth of white wealth. Wealth meaning what you own versus debt. Death rates for blacks is higher for, for, for heart rate, as heart disease, stroke, cancer, asthma, influenza, pneumonia, diabetes, AIDS, and homicide, higher than for whites. Black Americans are two and a half times as likely as whites to be killed by police officers. I'm stumbling on those stats because it kind of blows my mind and it's hard to say and it's hard to believe and it's hard to think that still today, black lives don't matter. In 1903, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. Well, is 2021 and white supremacy still has its knees on our neck. It still beats the life out of black lives, beats the joy out of black folks. Our children don't have good school districts as whites. Their children don't have as many good books as whites. Our housing patterns are still impoverished because of redlining and discrimination. We, excuse my colloquial, ain't free. I'm kind of, I'm kind of excited that Juneteenth is now a federal holiday. We were giving it to our staff anyway, but I'm trying to figure out how we move from symbolic gestures to policies and practices that actually liberate black people. I'm trying to figure out how we, the church, we, the church, become a shelter in the storm. I'm trying to figure out how we, the church, help heal the festering, foul-smelling sore that is a wound on the soul of America that is intractable and permanent, in which white people, too many, so many white people, feel automatically enfranchised and disenfranchised Black people, almost as an automatic response to our Black existence. When you see someone kneel on a Black man on the sidewalk and look casually in a camera while killing him, that's so egregious that, well, we're just so, we're clear how evil and vile that is. But friends, it's the everyday automatic response of too many white leaders, white people, white parents, white teachers, white pastors to blackness. It's like a, a flinch. It's softer than clutching the person crossing the street. It's more subtle than moving back on an elevator. It's the kind of microaggression that's like the way a white person can talk to me as a black person about blackness, even about Juneteenth, about American politics. 
in such a way that their white experience of the black experience feels normative or authorized. It's the kind of microaggression where the way white people treat black men neuters them, flattens them. If the black men in our lives and our multiracial lives actually really took a breath and breathed out their full black maleness, unabashed black maleness, we wouldn't know what to do. It's black fear, it's black sexuality, it's black violence, it's black anger. All of that shuts down the black men in our lives, tames them. And black women, if we were ever, when we are, when we are fully our black, female, powerful, strong selves in white company, we're sassy, we're sexy, we're angry, we're a caricature of our true selves. This even in the most progressive, multiracial, multi-ethnic communities, this even in spaces where we expect justice to reign. There can be jealousy, covetousness, and envy about our black, beautiful, strong, and powerful selves. And that makes it unsafe. The the caricature makes us unsafe. The, The flattening makes us unsafe. The stereotyping makes us unsafe. We are not fully human in the gaze of white folks still, and that makes us unsafe. That makes it dangerous to be black in America because you are not a whole person. You are a thin line of something that therefore is not fully human and can therefore be destroyed. It's Father's Day. I'm thinking about the very first time I was called the N-word. And even when we say N-word, just like remember when Trump was on television and we were saying he said the P-word? And then we were like, oh, it's not that bad. It was just the P word. Well, the N word, nigger, called a nigger in kindergarten. When I was called the N word, my mom responded to that by teaching me how to be a prayer warrior. And I'm convinced that I'm in ministry today because of the words she said then, racism is silly, Jackie. It's silly that they won't like you because you're black. And took me on my knees to pray, to pray. And I'm like, God, let it be that no matter what color Someone is that they'll fully be loved. That was the beginning of a spirituality that was anti-racist at the at the giftedness of my mother. My dad, dad went to the base commander and demanded an apology, demanded reparations, demanded an apology from little Miss Lisa, who called me the N-word, and her dad. That was the beginning of my activism. Thank you, Daddy. The beginning of my activism that when something happens, when you see something, you say something. When you see something, you do something. That's why I'm in ministry. Those two parents are why I'm here. Why I'm here sweating, marching, protesting, writing in the public square against racism. That's why I'm here in this multi-ethnic church, not the Black church, where this work is happening all the time, but I'm in the multi-ethnic church, the multicultural church, because I believe the only way to disrupt racism is to do it in in these places as well, that we need to rehearse here in our multi-ethnic community 
What is life after storm? What is life on the other side of storm? What it means together to be a shelter in the time of storm. And in this context, I've worked with our boards and our staff for 17 years to move Middle Church from a kind of white and black church with a few Latinx people and a couple Asians, Gloria Moy being one, to an anti-racist institute designed to heal the world. The way we hire staff, who we put on the board, the way we make our budget a moral document, the way we stand in for our friends and family to protect them from COVID, including the pop-up inoculation site that's happening next Saturday, the way we understand in this middle church community that our justice work has to be intersectional, that we have to be as queer as we wanna be, that we have to be as black as we wanna be, that we have to be as standing up for Latinx folks and what happens on the border, that we have to be standing up for, other, for Mother Earth and for indigenous lives, all of these things, no oppression Olympics, but an intersectional movement for love and justice, which has not on the margins of it, at the center of it, Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Because we're clear that as long as America is a nation in which my Black body is not safe, you're not safe. That as long as we live in a, in a context in which white women treat me like a child, your children are not safe. As long as America lives in a context in which critical race theory is gonna be put out of school districts because fragile white children can't learn how to be good citizens who love all the people, nobody is safe. And Middle Church family on this Juneteenth weekend, when we have put hours and hours into this Juneteenth programming to celebrate, to commemorate Black resilience, Black joy, Black resistance. In this community, where we fully put $100,000 on the line for Black Lives Matter programming, I'm telling you today that the work we're called to do is prophetic, mission critical, and that work is about truth, reconciliation, and reparations. We at Middle Church do our programming, our anti-racism training, our Freedom Lab work is about telling the truth. It's about teaching the truth to each other. It's about knowing the truth because the truth is gonna set us free. That's why we created a whole year program of a racial healing task force. Reading Jimmy Baldwin, <clears throat> Breaking Bread Together, learning about white fragility and learning about black power. We did that so we could speak the truth, so we know the truth, so we can live the truth. The truth will set us free. This ministry is about reconciliation. That's why we set a table for queer folks that are multi-ethnic and multiracial. That's why we have a staff that is multi-ethnic. That is why we are in conversations that cross borders and boundaries, because how we get to reconciliation is in relationship with one another. And this last piece, this piece about reparations, when we dream about the new building, when we dream about our new 
physical site that will be physical and digital, we're also dreaming about a reparation center, one that will be intersectional and help us never forget what the Dutch, our ecclesiastical ancestors did to the indigenous in this place, how we sit on Lenape land because we stole Lenape land, but also a reparations conversation about black folks, how we never got the 40 acres and a mule, how black wealth, black poverty, black housing, black wellness have to be in the center of our work if we're going to actually be faithful to the ministry of Jesus the Christ. I'm talking about reparations that starts with our programming, programming directed toward black children, toward black seniors, toward black young adults, to put back in their bodies and in their lives things that have been stolen. The storm that needs to be having the wind taken out of it is anti-Black racism in this nation. It will be the beginning of the healing of the wound, the funky, long-lasting wound that hurts Black people and therefore hurts all of us. When I was writing my dissertation and studying leaders who lead multiracial churches, one leader, um, Randolph Charles, white, rich, Southerner, grew up with a Black nanny. Charles told me that, that one time there was such a raging storm, such a scary storm in his big mansion, windows clanging, clapboards clanging. He was terrified and hid under the stairs. And it was his black nanny who came and held him and comforted him until he was safe. He says, when I think about where I learned how to love, I learned it from her, from my nanny, named Maddie. Not so much my mom and dad, but my nanny. I took in, I internalized, I interjected her love, her fierce love that taught me how to be a shelter in a time of storm. His church, multi-ethnic, multi-racial church in Washington, D.C. grew 10 times under his leadership, black, white, Jewish, multi-ethnic community led by a white leader who interjected a black woman's determination to be free. Am I making sense? This black leader is calling you into a multi-ethnic, multi-racial movement for love and justice with the center of it, anti-black racism being eradicated once and for all. That's what we're going to do together this year and in the years to come. And for that, I need your partnership, your prayers, yes, your attendance, yes. But honey, I also need your money. We're going to start a campaign in which we deal with building our new site that will be physical and digital, in which we will house our Freedom School for Children to teach them how to be anti-racist, just like the Freedom Schools in the South, but also our Freedom Laboratory across generations, raising a cadre of adults who understand how to be anti-racist in their bodies and in their lives. I'm asking you to come along with me, not only to hear the tough sermons, not only to have the hard talks, not only to learn and be trained, not only to do activism, but to actually partner in this movement with your livelihood, to invest in this movement with your funds, to make donations so we can rise up 
and do this work. We're not used to talking about money at Middle Church. Y'all are like, why do we charge in tickets for Juneteenth? I heard you, I heard you. But it's a new day and the mission is critical and urgent. The collegiate church is no longer going to fund any of our ministries at the level they used to. Our budget this year will go down from $1.1 million to $700,000. $1.1 million from the collegiate church to $700,000 for our operating budget. That is a $400,000 cut. I'm inviting you to think about how you can help stand in the gap. If you believe in freedom, stand in the gap. If you believe in anti-racism, stand in the gap. If you love the work we're doing here at Middle Church, all of you across the nation and across the globe watching this, participating in this, stand in the gap. Help me take the wind out of the storm. Help Middle Church take the wind out of the storm. Help Jesus the Christ take the wind out of the storm by joining us in this movement. If you haven't yet joined the church, please do. Middlechurch.org slash join. And if you haven't yet made Middle Church a part of your budget, come on, my people. Is there anything more important than healing racism? Once and for all. Come and join me. Stop the storm. Amen.